It does my heart good to look out across this room and see your faces. It's, it's a happy time when we gather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Please open in your Bibles, if you would, to First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2. We are in a series on the book of First Peter. We, we find ourselves now up to verse 9, and our text this morning is First Peter 2, 9 and 10. It's always encouraging for a preacher when the prophetic words line up so nicely with the theme of the sermon which uh, happened this morning uh, to my great delight. First Peter chapter 2. You there? Verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Those last few sentences in our text, in verse 10, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Those words are drawn from a poem found in the book of Hosea. Hosea was the last prophet to preach to Israel in the northern kingdom before that nation was destroyed and taken captive as a result of long years of disobeying God's word and rejecting the Lord. And it's a very unusual book in this respect that God instructed Hosea to marry a prostitute and to maintain marital faithfulness with her despite her rampant and embarrassing unfaithfulness. Thus Hosea's life became a picture of the, the depth of God's long-suffering love for his people, a love that is ready to forgive, but a love that would tolerate no rivals. The Lord made it clear, even in the Ten Commandments, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Well, even the names of Hosea's children, children that he had with his unfaithful wife, were part of Hosea's message. I just noticed this week that the name of Isaiah's son, who traveled with Isaiah as he went about prophesying, was Shir Jashub, 
which means I looked down in the footnote and was astonished to discover that it means a remnant will return. So the name of Isaiah's son was a message in itself. Hi, I'm Isaiah. This is my son, a remnant will return. Now I'm going to speak to you about what God says about your unholiness. But my son is a remnant who will return. A remnant shall return. His name ministered hope to a people about to go into exile. Well, when Hosea's wife conceived their second child, a daughter, the Lord said to him, call her name, and this is sobering and sad, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Those names, no mercy, and not my people, signified the termination of God's covenant blessings. Israel would be cast out of the promised land for their sin, like Adam and Eve had been cast out of the garden for theirs. But thank God, that's not the end of the story. The Lord promised that a surviving remnant would return. And Hosea 2 says, And in that day, I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. Those poetic words were partially fulfilled when the exiles returned to the land. But Peter's use of the words from this poem indicates that their ultimate fulfillment is not with that small remnant returning to the land of Israel, but with a, a people as numerous as the sand of the sea. The ultimate fulfillment is the church of Jesus Christ. Hosea said in the first chapter, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. That's about us. Once we were no mercy. We were alienated and separated from the commonwealth of Israel and the promises of God. Once we were no mercy. Now we have received mercy. Once we were not my people. But now, thank God, we are God's people. By virtue of God's mercy, by virtue of his mercy, which is kindness to the guilty, 
We are now God's people. We are a new redeemed humanity. And thank God we are under his covenant blessing. Our sovereign grace statement of faith says, throughout salvation history, God by his word and spirit has been calling sinful people out of the whole human race to create a new redeemed humanity whom Christ purchased with his blood. With the giving of the spirit at Pentecost, God's people were reconstituted as his new covenant church in continuity with the old covenant people, but now brought to fulfillment by the work of Christ. All God's people are united in one body with Christ as the supreme, sustaining, life-giving head and set apart for God's own possession and purposes. The title of our sermon this morning is a people for God's own possession. And our text this morning teaches that the church is in macrocosm or, or on a grand and worldwide scale, everything that Israel was in microcosm or on a small and localized scale. It teaches that what shaped Israel's identity throughout Old Testament history are the very same things that shape our identity as the church. Peter, Peter here seeks to encourage these beaten down Christians with a sense of the, the greatness of their corporate identity in Christ. It's as if he was saying to them, look, though you experience humiliation and shame in your culture, though those around you see you as irrelevant nobodies, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let's go through those one by one, shall we? First, we are a chosen race. We're chosen. We're chosen like Abraham and his descendants were chosen. God didn't choose them because they were better than other people. They weren't. He didn't choose them because they were more numerous than other people. They were tiny. He didn't choose them because they were especially impressive. They weren't. No. Look, God doesn't choose the wise or the mighty or the noble. He chooses the likes of us. The foolish, the weak, and the despised. And you know why he does that? He does that in order that no man may boast before the Lord. When we think of the, the honor, the, the high honor, the, the incredible honor of being God's chosen people, it must never provoke within us 
a haughtiness or a pride as if we're somehow especially worthy. No. We know, you know, we know how unworthy we are. We know we've been chosen by grace alone. And his choice of us provokes within us not a pride, but praise at the wonders of his grace. And we sing, all sufficient grace for me, for even me. Now the text goes on to say that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. Now all kinds of things come to our minds in this day and age at the mention of the word race. But what doesn't come to mind as often as it should is that we, the church, are a chosen race. I love what H.B. Charles says. He just preached on this text three weeks ago at Southwestern Baptist Seminary. He said in that sermon, we are part of the human race by physical birth. And we are part of the chosen race by spiritual birth. We have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Juan Sanchez in his commentary says, the church is a new race made up of many ethnicities chosen by God on the basis of his predetermined love. Now that's not to minimize one's racial identity. Again, I love what H.P. Charles said. He said, being a Christian doesn't erase your racial identity. Being a Christian transcends your racial identity. Amen. <laughs> Paul said, if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. We're part of that chosen race. Heirs according to the promise. God's chosen race, brothers and sisters, is, is made up of men and women from every race who by the grace of God have been made descendants of Abraham, not by physical descent, but by spiritual descent. That chosen race is made up of people whose faith is like Abraham's. He believed God. And we believe God. Therefore, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, God established the Levitical priesthood, and that select group was called to serve the sanctuary. But God also called all of Israel to have a priestly ministry to the nations. So at the very beginning of their constitution as a people of God, at Mount Sinai, the Lord said, you shall said to Moses, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession. By the way, we know that Peter had this text in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wanted his people as, as a kingdom of priests to stand between God and the rest of humanity. That was why he had called Abraham and his descendants to be a priestly nation, to be a priestly kingdom with him as their king. He wanted them to stand between God and the rest of humanity to hold the nations before the Lord in prayer and to hold the Lord before the nations in prophetic witness. In Christ, God's royal priesthood is no longer restricted to a small nation in the southeast corner of the Mediterranean. The entire church of God, all Christians are to serve together as a kingdom, as a mighty kingdom of priests. Among all the peoples, because all the earth is the Lord's. Jared read last Sunday, we'll read it again from Revelation 5. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Folks, God's purpose is not just to have a few evangelistic types praying for and ministering to a world of lost people. It would never work. There's nearly 8 billion people in the world. He's called his entire church and all her members to serve in this priestly ministry, asking God to save people and telling people about the Savior who died to save them. We are a royal priesthood. We represent our royal king. We are a holy nation. This should, this should inform our identity as well. The people who initially received this letter, they lived in Pontus and, and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And no doubt they all identified to some measure or degree with their city-state or with their nation. I'm a Galatian. Well, I'm a Cappadocian. I'm a Bithynian. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Roman. And it had to be painful for all of those brothers and sisters to be rejected and unjustly marginalized or ostracized or to have their property confiscated on account of their faith. Not by just anybody, but with the nation they identified with and no doubt which some of them loved. Disheartening. My own country. But Peter here encourages them. He encourages them and says 
that they are now part of a new city, a new nation, a new commonwealth. They're now part of a new society, a new homeland, a new kingdom. And that nation transcends ethnic, political, and geographic boundaries. Its builder and maker is God. And its king is Jesus who loved us and died for us. The church is a holy nation. Like Israel was, set apart, consecrated unto God for him and for his glorious purposes in the earth. We're not used to thinking of the church as a nation, but it is. And that should absolutely shape our identity. By virtue of the new birth, we are citizens of a new country. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for our nation. There's so much good in it. And we want to help to make it better. But folks, we're already citizens of a greater nation. The big picture is this, if, if you allow me to quote scripture in rapid succession. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. Bloop. They're accounted as the dust on the scales. But we, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And at the end of the age, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's our nation. We are a holy nation, set apart and consecrated unto God forever. We're a people for his own possession. Now the Bible teaches that God possesses all things. Like we're, his, we're people for his possession, but, but God possesses everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Isn't everyone already his possession? Well, while all men are God's possession by virtue of creation, the church is his prized possession, his treasured possession by virtue of redemption. We are chosen and precious in his sight having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Peter said to his, his readers, we already studied it when we were in chapter 1, you were ransomed. Ransomed, bought back, redeemed. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that, of a lamb without blemish. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. 
We need to think this way. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We're a people for his own possession. And that has huge implications. When Paul said, you're not your own, you were bought with a price, immediately after that, he says, so glorify God in your body. The fact that we do not belong to ourselves, that we belong to him, that he has purchased us, has enormous implications for how we live. And at a minimum, it means that we should fulfill the purposes for which we were redeemed. Why has God shown us mercy? Why has he made us a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession? What is, what is the purpose of God in all of this? Well, the next clause answers that question. That we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's purpose is that we might proclaim his excellencies, and, and that has at least two aspects, worship and witness. First, worship. If you go to the American embassy anywhere in the world, if you go to the American embassy anywhere in the world, you're going to meet citizens of America, and you're going to hear English spoken. I remember how refreshing it was for me as a college student. I traveled internationally. And you hear people speaking languages you don't understand. You go to the American embassy and everybody is talking home. <laughs> if you visit the French embassy anywhere in the world, you'll meet citizens of France and you'll hear French spoken. If you visit the church anywhere in the world, you're going to meet citizens of heaven and you'll hear the language of heaven spoken. And that language is praise. Any prophet, you read your Bible, any prophet who's caught up into heaven, he steps into a realm of unceasing praise. Angels are crying holy. Living creatures are falling down, crying, worthy are you, O Lord. Elders and multitudes are singing, we give thanks to you, O Lord. Just and true are your ways. Great and wonderful are your deeds. Heaven is a realm of praise. And if you visit the redeemed community anywhere in the world, you will hear the language of praise. You'll hear praise in songs. You'll hear praise in hymns. You'll hear praise in sermons. You'll hear praise in conversations. And you'll even hear praise in the announcements. Jim made some announcement this morning and punctuated it with, praise God. I forget what the announcement was. God's purpose, God's purpose in showing us mercy and making us into a people is that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace that we might forever and together tell beings yet to be created we are objects of mercy who should have known wrath 
But look at the love that he poured out upon us. We've been created to be to the praise of what? His glorious grace. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. That we might praise him. That we might exalt him. That we might magnify his name for the grace that he showed us in the cross of Jesus Christ. I like what Edmund Clowney says in his commentary on this text. He says, the worship of God finds its burning focus in lifting the name of God in adoration. Praises must rise from the lips of all his people, assembled before his face. When we're here, we're not just here. We're assembled before the throne of grace. Praises must rise from the lips of all his people, assembled before his face and joining with the festival assembly of the saints and the angels. If the singing and speaking forth the praises of God are viewed as preliminaries to the sermon, the meaning of worship has been lost. Nothing can be put above worship. And I love this. This summarizes Peter's point. He lifts us up so that we may lift him up. Amen. Let me just say that the, we, your pastors, love the way you lift him up Sunday after Sunday. As we reviewed our Sunday services in our last elders meeting, we, we agreed together how wonderful it's been to hear your voices, not just the band, your voices lifted up in song, lifted up in praise with beautiful harmonies and infectious joy and deep gratitude to God. I scanned the audience, so many of you, passionately worshiping him, hands raised, eyes closed, pouring out praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I love it. We love it. Now, the second aspect of proclaiming his excellencies is witness. God has chosen us and made us his people in order that this gospel of the kingdom might be preached in all the earth. Again, Juan Sanchez says, as a holy nation and a royal priesthood, then we've been chosen by God as his special possession in order to proclaim his glorious work in salvation. We are a people who have been brought out of darkness into light, who now seek to display that light to those still in darkness. To declare his excellencies in witness is to tell forth or to spread abroad the attributes and the character and the power and the glory of God as seen in the gospel. Friends, when you're witnessing, don't be afraid to just start, start talking about how wonderful God is. How wonderful Jesus is. How much you love him. We are declaring his excellencies, proclaiming them in both worship and witness. Now, in conclusion, and the band can begin to make their way back, let me just make a single point of application. We could apply this in so many ways. Let me focus it down to one point of application, and that involves local church involvement. This section of Scripture, brothers and sisters, could not make it clearer that the new covenant of which we have partaken, which we celebrated when we shared communion this morning. This new covenant joins us 
not only to God, there is not only this vertical reconciliation, this, this vertical joining, this, this vertical being knitted to God. The new covenant not only joins us to God, but this new covenant joins us to one another. Where there is also a bond, a joining, a knitting together. The new covenant joins us both to God and to one another, and that's so beautifully illustrated in communion. We share one loaf. We partake of, of Christ's blood together. Clearly, clearly, the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. Thank God for the prophetic words this morning that compassionately ministered to those who are in isolation. Christian life is not to be lived in isolation, either as individuals or as families. We belong together. We belong together. We belong together like living stones in a house belong together. We belong to get together like members of an extended family belong together. We belong together like priests with a common ministry belong together, busily serving the temple. We belong together like citizens of a nation belong together. Once we were not what? A people. Now we are a people. There is that horizontal component of the new covenant. So every believer in Jesus Christ, every Christian, needs to find his or her place among the people of God in the church. Not necessarily this church, but in the church. Every believer. Again, our statement of faith makes this clear. The church is the focal point of God's plan to mature his people and save sinners. Therefore, all Christians, are you a Christian? All Christians are to join themselves as committed members to a specific local church. So, let's find our place in God's redeemed community. It's good when the family of God dwells together in the spirit, in faith, in unity, lifting up his name with one voice. So let's come alongside our fellow citizens, the saints, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, let each of us play our part to make Christ's excellencies known in all the earth. Amen.